Tonight, it's a real pleasure to welcome back Chip Connolly, who's going to discuss his experiences working as a baby boomer among millennial colleagues and his new book, which I highly recommend, called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. Chip founded Joie de Vivre Hospitality and served for 24 years as its CEO. After he sold the company, he joined Airbnb as the head of global hospitality and strategy. Today, he is the company's strategic advisor for hospitality and leadership. He is the founder of Fest 300, which is part of Everfest, San Francisco's annual celebrity pool toss fundraiser and the Hotel Hero Awards. He is the recipient of the Hospitality Industries Pioneer Award. He has a BA and an MBA from Stanford University and an honorary doctorate in psychology from Saybrook University. He serves on the boards of the Burning Man Project and the Esalen Institute. He's the author of five books, including Peak and Emotional Equations, and they were inspired by the theories of transformation and meaning by famed psychologists Abraham Maslow and Viktor Frankl. And he, we were comparing notes earlier. We both have, as one of our favorite books of all time, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's really worth reading, and it's a, you can get it for about $6 on, on Amazon. And Viktor Frankl was the founder of a school of psychiatry called Logotherapy. And there's a lot to that, because in modern psychiatry, you search for meaning through therapy. In logotherapy, you find therapy through meaning. And I think much of the problems in the world today result from many of us not having meaning in our lives. So please join me in welcoming Chip Conley. He's going to give everybody meaning in their lives. Chip. <laughs> wow, okay. Well, that's, that's quite an offer. <laughs> I hope I don't disappoint you. It's great to be here. It's great to be back at home. It's wonderful to have my parents here. Uh, so I, I grew up in Long Beach, and in fact, my Great, 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 great grandfather was one of the first mayors of Long Beach, I think. Um, so I have a lot of history here. So it's very funny to have actually grown up here, gone to Long Beach Poly High School, been a kid here, and now I'm here back to talk about being a modern elder. <laughs> so um, I'm going to do my best to, uh, to present uh, a new way of thinking about aging. Uh, I'm, I've been lucky enough that it's getting, it's getting some attention. The book's done well. Um, I was asked to give a TED Talk on the subject. So I was here nine years ago uh, to give a TED Talk in Long Beach on a different subject about happiness. Um, but back in October or September, I was asked to give a TED Talk at the TED Salon at TED headquarters in New York about the subject I'm going to show you today. Although this is not the TED Talk that you'll see on, online. This is actually a talk I've only done once before. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, it's good to be, and it's funny because you're going to see my dear old dad, uh, an image of him, and it's not gratuitous just because he's in the audience. It's it's part of the it's actually part of the presentation. <laughs> All right, so um, I'm going to actually start with a interesting uh, quote. 
So uh, one of the things I'm going to talk about today is the, va the relative importance of an elder in a society. Um, although I do think it's the current version of what, why an elder is necessary is different than the past version of why an elder was important. Um, let's see if this was working. There we go. Uh, so I had no idea I would be becoming an expert on the subject of what does it mean to be an elder. And for those of you who are struggling with that word and looking at me and saying, Chip, you are not an elder. Um, you know, I think an elder is a relative term. Um, when you're a 52-year-old, I'm 58 now, when you're a 52-year-old, as I was six years ago, joining a company, Airbnb, where the average age was 26, I was absolutely an elder. <laughs> but if you're 35 and surrounded by 20-year-olds, you're probably an elder as well. So I think it's a relative term in terms of who you're surrounded by. Um, but it'll make a little more sense uh, as we go along. Now, this is my elder, Stephen Townsend Conley Sr. I am Stephen Townsend Conley Jr., a chip off the old block. This is true, true story. That wasn't it at all. Yes, it was actually because I looked like a chipmunk when I was born, and my grandmother called me a chipmunk, and that's how I got to be chip. But I was also a chip off the old block. And this is me and dear old dad in uh, Sulawesi, Sulawesi, Indonesia, um, about a year ago. We were scuba diving, and uh, that morning, um, I decided before you know going out and scuba diving in the morning, I decided to go on an, on an online longevity site. So you can go online and you can put all your specs of who you are and you know how old your parents are and et cetera, et cetera, and then it will it will tell you how long you're going to live. Now, of course, not there's no guarantees on this this kind of thing, but I did that that morning, and it told me that I was going to live till age 98. Uh, so I went out and I, sat, I asked Dad. I said, so Dad, tell me how long you're going to live. And he said, 95. And then I said, well, can we get you to 98? I'd li like to get you to 98 because I want you to be at the same age as that I'll be. And, and, and so we had this conversation. We ended up videoing it. But the thing that's interesting about this is it, we have to rewire our brain about what does it mean to get older. Um, so my dad didn't start scuba diving until he was age 60. He's 81 now. And in the last 21 years, he has done 800 open water dives all over the world. He's done 1,400 dives, instructional dives on Thursdays here at the aquarium. He did that for seven years. So he started doing that at age, at age 50, I'm sorry, at age 60. So when I was talking with my dad about this, I said, so dad, if you're going to live to, let's say, let's say you live to 98, and you're, at that time he was 80. Um, I said, if you actually do the math of how far along you are in your adult life, if you start counting at age 18, you are barely into the fourth quarter of your adulthood. Now, for me at that time, I was 57 and 58 today. If I lived till 98, I wasn't even at halftime. Because I, at age 57, I had had 39 years of adulthood, but I had, I had 41 years ahead of me if I'm going to live till 98. We don't think about uh, adult math that way. This is, this is, I guess, a new form of new math. Um, and so when you start thinking that way, you take up things that you might not have taken up otherwise. I now live in, in, in uh, Mexico uh, as my primary home uh, in Baja, about an hour north of Cabo San Lucas. 
So I'm taking up Spanish. I was one of those silly kids in high school at Long Beach Poly who learned French, which is, what, which is why Joie de Vivre became the name of my company. Um, not Spanish, uh, and I should have, but now at age 58, I'm learning Spanish. And at age 56, I started learning how to surf. Um, so you can take things up later in life when you know you're gonna be around a little bit longer than how we had originally thought about uh, the cycle of life. And our cycle of life, in terms of life expectancy, has changed so much over the last few years. This shows you just since 1800 till a projection of 2100. A lot of people don't realize, although you've probably understood it, but you don't, it, it's hard to actually even imagine it. The average life expectancy in the US in the year 1900, 1900 was 47. Um, now, again, life expectancy is sort of a, a skewed thing because a lot of young people died early. And so it didn't mean everybody, half the people died before 47. Yes, actually, it is true. Half the people did die before 47, half the people didn't. But the truth is there are still a lot of people who lived till 70 and 80 and 90, even in 1900. But what's happened through uh, public health and a variety of other reasons is less people die early and people do live longer. Um, and the average life expectancy in the year 2000 was 77. So we added three decades of life in one century. Never, obviously never had happened before. Um, and so as a result of that, it's actually created segments or cycles, parts of life, life stages, that really didn't exist in the past. And that's what I'm gonna talk about today. So um, many people don't realize, but the word adolescence is only 115 years old. Prior to a book, this book, written by Stanley Hall in 1904, uh, adolescence as a word and as a concept didn't exist. People knew they went through puberty, that word did exist, but actually after you went through puberty, you were an adult. You got married at 14 or 15 or 16, you were actually working in an industrial plant. The idea of child labor laws is happened, generally speaking, after this book came out, when they said, okay, maybe adulthood is 18. Uh, prior to that, adulthood was sort of this squishy concept that happens what, once you actually went through puberty. So it was 115 years ago that we really rethought the idea of adolescence. And we recognized, and, and psycho the psychology uh, profession sort of popularized the idea that adolescence was a period of time when you were going through a lot of hormonal changes, emotional changes. We sort of gave people a lot of, you know, a, a, a free hall pass around adolescence that they're gonna be a little bit more sort of going up and down and a little bit difficult during that period of life. Well, I'm gonna actually suggest today that there's a new period of life that we need to consider, which is middle essence. Not just adolescence, but middle essence. And I'll explain that a little bit further. But it's a period of time that actually prepares you for elderhood, just like adolescence is a period of time that prepares you for adulthood. There's a guy named, do you know, this is a funny statistic, the number one selling poet in the US today wrote his poetry 750 years ago. A guy named Rumi, uh, if you've ever heard of Rumi. You know, people love Rumi's poetry because it actually sort of has a modern, a modern flavor to it. One of his famous quotes that he said was, my life can be summed up in three phases. I was raw, I became cooked, and then I burned. That concept of raw, cooked, burned 
describes the three-stage life that is pretty much dominated how we've thought of our lives. You learn till you're 20 or 25, you earn till you're 65, and then you retire till you die. Sound familiar? That's sort of what we grew up with. That model, the tyranny of the three-stage life, is actually evaporating in front of our eyes. People are choosing to take a gap year at age 42. People are retiring, especially in the where, area where I live part of the time up in Silicon Valley, in their 30s because they've started a company. Um, people choose to go back to school in their 50s. Uh, so the idea of the three-stage life where you, you know, it's all age segregated, you just learn during this early period, you, you earn during this middle period, and then you retire at age 65. More and more people are not retiring at 65, both, both by choice and necessity. And if you're going to live to 100, I think fewer and fewer people are going to say, oh, yes, I'm going to retire at 65, because do the math. If, it's very hard to, for most people to actually finance a 30- or 40-year retirement with a 40-year career. <laughs> it doesn't work so well. So um, I believe Rumi got, had it quite... Maybe it was right during the three-stage life, but I actually think if I were to whisper in Rumi's ear 750 years ago about modern life, it would be, I was raw, I became cooked, and then I burned, and then repeat. <laughs> raw, cooked, burn, raw again. And that's going to be part of my story today, um, is the idea of burnt and then you're, got, you're done is, is sort of an old concept that I'm, I'm, I think it's time to retire there's a woman named uh, Mary Catherine Bateson. She was the uh, daughter of Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson, the famous psychologist, Margaret Mead, the famous uh, cultural anthropologist. Uh, and she said that something interesting uh, 10 or 15 years ago she, when she could sort of see that we were getting more and more life. We, we were going to live longer than our parents. And, uh, and this is, so that phenomena of living longer than your parents is a phenomena that started in the 20th century and it's continuing into the 21st century in most of, most of U.S. society. Some parts of society, we're seeing some longevity going backward because of opioid use and things like that. What she said is, when we get that extra 10 or 15 years of life that we didn't necessarily expect relative to our parents, instead of it being like a, a room addition, a bedroom on the back of your house, as if you got 10 additional years later in life, so you get 10 additional years of decrepitude, um, that doesn't sound very exciting. She said, actually, the way we should think of it is not that way. We should think of it as a midlife atrium. That extra 10 or 15 years is 10 or 15 years of additional vitality in the middle of your life. Um, and what that means is, as is true for an atrium, is an atrium allows for sunlight and, and um, so you can actually reflect and appreciate uh, the idea of renewal in this kind of uh, open space of midlife. And so this is an interesting blueprint for a new way of thinking about midlife. And so it'll, it'll very much fit with what I'm going to talk about today. Um, so I wish <laughs> back about 11 years ago that I had heard all about all the stuff I've talked about so far. I went through a very difficult time in my age 45 to 49. Um, won't go through all the details other than to say, uh, do you remember back when I was a kid at least, 
uh, and maybe some of you were kids at the same time, some of you were parents, there was a game called The Game of Life. Do you remember that game? It's a board game as it still exists. So the game of life was sort of there's this way you, you go through your life and you, you, know, you have this little car and you, you, you end up getting married and you have kids and then you have this job. And, and it sort of defined how life was. And it, was it was not exactly linear, but it was a path that everybody went on. Well, I actually, at age 47, 48, felt like I was like, playing the game of life very badly. <laughs> and I didn't understand that, in fact, as you'll see in a few minutes, that there's a phenomena that social scientists have shown about there's a U-curve of happiness uh, that I was right at the bottom of that U-curve of happiness. Didn't know that existed. Um, and in many ways, I think the societal narrative that defines our lives is really at odds with how our lives are being lived. Um, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. But for me, this is a dark slide because, frankly, for a lot of people, um, they don't recognize that they're going through a life stage that hasn't been given a whole lot of attention. And this is part of the reason why the peak suicide years, especially for men, are in their 40s and early 50s. So I ended up selling my company around that time. I was ready for something else. How many of you saw the movie The Intern with Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway? Well, I love this quote because this defined me. I sold Joie de Vivre, the hotel company that I'd started, uh, and uh, sold it at the sort of the bottom of the Great Recession. It was not the best time to sell it. I w I, if I was smart financially, I would have waited four or five more years, but I, I felt like I was in invisible handcuffs. I didn't want to do it anymore. And so um, I knew that it, I was ready for something new in my life. I was 48 years old. Uh, actually 49 years old when, the, when it closed escrow and I, I was able to sell the business. And I felt like this quote, musicians don't retire, they quit when there's no more music left inside of them. Um, so I wasn't really sure what was next for me. And as Jerry said, uh, what happened was, I, I, can't, I can only say that sometimes you have to make space in your life and then see what's gonna emerge and sometimes it's miraculous. Well, what emerged is these three young guys, um, the three young millennial founders of Airbnb, who uh, ironically started their company when they were 20, two of them were 26 and one was 24. Um, I was 26 when I started my company, so I understood the mentality of being someone at that age starting a company. Um, Brian, who's the one who's sitting, who's st standing on a big block because he's not that tall, um, so to make sure he looks as tall as Nate, that's Joe, Nate, and Brian. Um, Brian reached out to me in early 2013, so a little over six years ago, and he called me and he said, how would you like to democratize hospitality? Now, I had no idea who this guy was, and I was like, what are you talking about? And he says, well, I am the co-founder of Airbnb, and I said, what's Airbnb? <laughs> Truly, I, and he says, well, let me, can I come over to your house, uh, and I'd love to like just talk with you about what we're doing because we're this small tech startup and we're you know we're in the process of growing, but nobody in the company has any hospitality or tra or travel industry background, zero, not one person. And I said okay, and he says well I'll Uber over, and I said you're gonna what? <laughs> Truly, I, six years ago I did not have an Uber or Lyft app on my phone. I had never heard of the term the sharing economy, um, and I really didn't know much about Airbnb. Truth. truth two stories. I did know, I had heard of Airbnb. I really didn't know what it did. Um, he came over to my home. We hung out in my backyard, in my cottage, and he started telling me about this idea of home sharing. 
and the idea that they wanted to become the, one of the world's you know, great hospitality brands. And I said, well, you've got a serious problem here. The people providing hospitality are all these hosts around the world. They're not your employees. They've never been trained in hospitality. Most of them are doing it part-time. Some of them are doing it and their landlords don't know they're doing it. This is like, this is nuts. And he said, yeah, we're, we're a disruptor. And I said, well, most people in hospitality aren't disruptors. <laughs> we're in the business of trying to make people feel good. So that was the start of my six-year relationship with these three guys. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about it, and we're going to have Q&A, so you're welcome to ask a lot of questions about that relationship because, um, you know, we're 20 times larger as a company today than we were six years ago when I first got that call. And uh, I feel very fortunate that I've been sort of the guy in the background helping them steer their rocket ship. And um, I, I had to learn, uh, learn what it meant to right-size my ego, to know that I'm no, no longer, you know, the person, the marquee. Uh, of a company, but I was the person helping to support them. There's a great quote from Eric Erickson, a famous psych uh, developmental psychologist, who said, I am what survives me. I am what survives me. And it really speaks about legacy, the idea of legacy. And of course, our kids survive us, and you know, there's all kinds of things that can survive us. And to be honest with you, the three of these guys are like my kids. They're like my kids because you know, they are going to survive me, and it looks like their company is going to as well. So, um, Lady Gaga, that's Lady Gaga. I just watched A Star is Born on, a, on my flight. It was really good. That should have won the Oscar. I don't know, I don't know. You know, I'm, we're not gonna get into controversial subjects like that. You don't talk about that, those things in LA. I can talk about that anywhere else, but in LA you don't bring up that kind of stuff. Um, but this is her with Tony Bennett. So the premise of intergenerational collaboration is nothing new in the music industry. Uh, Wynton Marcellus, Mr. Marcellus is an amazing jazz musician, and he has for 25 years been working with younger jazz musicians, the young stars of jazz, and they, they learn how to riff off each other. So what I started to realize is the business world is not used to this idea of riffing off different generations. Um, the riffing off, the riffing or the improv of generations at Airbnb for me was almost like a, a trade agreement. Um, I, and I had no idea of this when I joined. First of all, let's be clear. When I joined Airbnb, I was 52, and I'd never worked in a tech company before. Never. Had zero experience with that. In fact, there's a, this is, I'll tell you this little story. Three days into joining Airbnb, I said, okay, I better sit in meetings with a lot of engineers and sort of just pick up the lingo and so I sat in a room with 12 engineers, average age. So the average age in the company was 26, I was 52. Um, in this particular meeting, everybody was about 26 years old. The guy running the meeting was 25. I asked him later, he was sort of a wizard. He was like, why, his hair was all out. He, he looked like an absent-minded professor, you know, early in life. Um, and he was saying all of these words in the meeting. I had no idea. It was almost like I was in Germany and they were speaking a language that I just couldn't get. And then, and so I was making lists of all the words I didn't understand. And then all of a sudden, he turned to me and he said, Chip. And he knew my name, which I was like sort of surprised because I was trying to be invisible, sort of in the back of the room. There were a dozen people in the room, and it was just me and these engineers. He took, Chip, if you shipped a feature and no one used it, did it really ship? Now, yeah, you're not, you, you're like me you don't know what it means to ship a feature, right? 
How many know what it means to ship a feature? Okay, there's maybe two or three of you. I had no idea, so I said, Chip is in deep ship. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. And then I slid, slid down in my chair, completely feeling shamed because I was like, oh, I'm the dumbest person in the room. And um, they moved on. But by the end of that first week, I was realizing I'm surrounded by these young people who talk a language, a millennial language and a tech language that I'm not familiar with. And I was brought in to become the, the mentor, to be the head of global hospitality and strategy, but also to be the in-house mentor for Brian, the CEO, who's 21 years younger than me, who I also reported to. What was it going to be like to get my first review, perform, performance review, from somebody the age of my theoretical son? Um, so it was a completely new habitat. Uh, I, I talk about it in the book. My dad and I were, my parents, used to live here and now live up in Northern California, we were going on a hike one day, and I was about, it was about two months into it, uh, into being there at Airbnb, and I was scared because I didn't know what it was like. I mean, after 24 years of being CEO of my own company, sort of calling the shots and having my ego you know, inflate as a result of all that, all of a sudden I was not a nobody because you know I was clearly like I'm the mentor to the in-house mentor, mentor of the CEO I wasn't a nobody but I was absolutely in what felt like enemy territory sometimes and I really felt like I didn't understand what it meant to be an intern and a mentor at the same time Robert De Niro in the movie The Intern was brought in at age 70 to be 34 year old Anne Hathaway the CEO's intern but he really became her his her, her mentor I was brought in by Brian to become his mentor, but I became his intern. <laughs> because I had to learn this new industry, technology, and this new collection of people who were talking, talking a language that didn't make any sense to me. So that's not easy to do. So, you know, moral of the story I'll talk about, but ultimately it worked out pretty well because one of the things I didn't realize Brian did not bring me into Airbnb for my emotional intel intelligence. Not that I didn't have it, I had it. But that was not ever the part of the language. But if there was one thing I think I brought to this company, it was the idea of EQ, emotional intelligence. Um, we expect these young digital leaders who are in, in their 20s become billionaires to miraculously embody the relationship wisdoms we older workers have had decades to learn. It is very hard to microwave your leadership skills and emotional intelligence. And when I joined the company, I was shocked at some of the lack of thinking that went into how do you lead people? How do you manage? How do you, how do you create teams that work well together? Um, and so ultimately, the, the trade agreement I had with these young people was I'll trade you some EQ some emotional intelligence, if you give me some DQ, some digital intelligence. Because the truth is that the, what's most valuable in most companies today, not just in the tech industry, but in every industry, is DQ. Everybody wants digital intelligence. Seven of the 10 largest companies in the world today are tech companies. So everybody wants to be a tech company. Everybody wants to go out and hire some digital natives, some millennials, to help them with their marketing strategy 
or with how they're going to set up their their infra their their uh, um, infrastructure, their uh, technology infrastructure, or etc. And it's fine. I love it. I think it's great. There's so much to be learned from these young people. But then we expect them to somehow be wise about everything else in life. They're brilliant technologists. They don't know necessarily how to lead a team. So I learned pretty quickly. They had something to learn from me. It wasn't just that I could learn from them. Um, and one thing, actually, one of my direct reports said to me, she said, <laughs> she said something quite funny at one point. She said, you know, Chip, your fact knowledge isn't all that important here. And I said, what do you mean? And she says, well, we don't really need to know how many rooms does a maid clean in an eight-hour shift in a hotel. At Airbnb and home sharing, you know, most of these hosts don't have maids doing eight-hour shifts. But your process knowledge is extremely valuable. I said, what do you mean by process knowledge? She says, you know how to get things done. You can actually read a room, understanding what are the underlying motivations of everybody in the room, and you have the organizational processes of understanding how do you get things done in an organization, because you've been in them for a long time, to know how to get things done. So I realized over time, like, that is true. I actually, there, there were things that were so obvious to me that weren't obvious to them. And that's sort of how life is, right? I mean, there's sometimes things that just because you've had experience with it, you, you think everybody else knows it. And, and, and that's sort of how they feel about technology. They, they look at you and say, how come you can't understand how this thing works? You know? It's like, you know, I, I know 3% of the functioning of this iPhone. And they know, they know, they know 100%. But I know 97% of how Jerry's mind works, which is really scary. Um, <laughs> No, what I mean by that is I understand, I can read the face of my phone, but it doesn't mean much to me. But I can read the face of a human, and it means a lot. And similarly, the opposite side of that is true for them. They understand the face of their phone, but then they understand the face of the person sitting next to them. Uh, this is all stereotypes, so let me just be clear about that, just to be clear, because this like not everybody fits this. Um, so we have five generations in the workplace for the very first time. Five generations. There's Generation Z, beyond millennials. And then there's the traditionalists, which are people, frankly, in their 70, like 75 and older, who are still working in some companies. Um, at Airbnb, we had four generations. We didn't have five. Um, but in some companies, there are five. So figuring out how do you create this kind of EQ for DQ, or whatever the trade agreement is, is a really fundamental part of the future of business. Why? Today, 40% of us in the U.S. have a boss that's younger than us. By the year 2025, the majority of Americans will have a boss that is younger than them. Let me say that again. By 2025, the majority of Americans will have a boss that is younger than them. This is big time. And that's partly because more and more of us are going to live longer and work longer and because power is moving to young people. So this idea of how do we work together in a collaborative kind of way is the tip of the iceberg. Okay. So <laughs> I started to think about this. And I was like, they started calling me the modern elder. And I was like, I don't know if I like that. <laughs> but I actually started to understand what they meant. What they meant was, you're not the traditional elder of the past who was regarded with reverence. We revered and respected our elders, right? You're not that traditional elder. The modern elder is not about reverence, it's about relevance. 
And relevance means you are as curious as you are wise. And so I was both the intern and the mentor at the same time. I was open to learning about things I didn't understand and, and occasionally sounding like the dumbest person in the room, while at the same time being able to offer wisdom and do all of that somehow within one human being, which was not easy. Um, but it was a, it's been a fascinating journey. So I, I started to uh, write this book after four years of full-time work, what was supposed to be 15 hours a week, which became more like 15 hours a day. Um, and, uh, and then now for two years, over two years as a strategic advisor, um, I started writing this book a couple years ago. Um, and as I was re writing the book and interviewing people who were in what I considered midlife, which was at that time I considered midlife 45 to 65, um, or 40 to 60, depending upon you know, which uh, study you see about like, what, what, how so sociologists uh, define it. What I started to realize is that, t I talked with over 150 people, interviewed them for this book, there was a level of anxiety and bewilderment out there that I wasn't as, I didn't, uh, I didn't know about. I knew, I had my own personal anxiety at being at Airbnb in the early days especially, but the anxiety was people feel like um, somehow power has passed them by. There was a way of living their life that they were supposed to do. They're supposed to pay their dues, and then when they got to their 50s and 60s, they got the power. And all of a sudden, it feels like power has now moved back to a younger era, and yet you're going to have to live longer. So you're going to live 10 years longer, but power is moving 10 years younger. That means there's a new 20-year irrelevancy gap that has just been uh, occurring in the last few years. So as I started to see that, I started to do a little bit of research on, well, what's this period of life? And I started to see that, gosh, people start feeling irrelevant in some industries, the technology industry for sure, the advertising industry for sure, fashion, uh, professional sports, um, to some degree at the entertainment industry, around mid-30s. And lots of people are gonna actually live and are, are gonna work till their mid-70s. So I now believe that midlife is actually 35 to 75. So some of you are still in midlife, and you didn't think you were. Um, and that's when I started to actually do a little bit of research on the idea, of, is there a new era of life that we could call middlescence? Not adolescence, but middlescence. Remember, adolescence is a time where you go through a lot of hormonal changes, physical changes, a lot of emotional changes, a lot of transitions. Well, who's to say that those things don't happen in, in middlescence? You know, you go through uh, menopause, men go through some changes too. Um, there's lots of emotional changes. There's a lot of transitions. I mean, there's a lot of transitions as, in adolescence, but there's a lot of tr transitions in middlescence. What are some of the things that happen in midlife in terms of a transition? Parents die. Parents die. <laughs> Children leave home. Empty nest syndrome. What else? Your work is gone, or you change your career, or you, you or you, you don't know what to do on that. You might get divorced. Uh, you may, you have menopause, you may have a health diagnosis that comes out of left field. These are the things that happen, this is a lot. And yet we don't have any language or uh, way of sort of creating a social crucible to help support people through that time. So as I was researching the book, I started thinking more about that and doing a little bit of research. 
I did research on rites of passage. So rites of passage is a premise that goes back to about the same time as adolescence, that book, about 115 years ago. A guy named Arnold Van Gennep uh, wrote a book called about rites of passage, studying um, um, indigenous societies around the world. And what he says is there are three parts to a rite of passage when someone's going through a major change in their life. You have this severance period. Um, think about actually like going into the military. The military is like a rite of passage. So you have a severance period where you sever your ties from how you were living. And then you have this <laughs> threshold liminal period. So I, I'm a big fan of this word liminal. Liminal basically means to be in limbo, in between two things. Um, and liminality is a very awkward feeling because it means you're sort of like not here, not there. You're in between two things. But it actually is, can be a very beautiful thing because frankly it means you're on the way to something. So this is an example of a, a pretty extreme version of threshold liminality. I'm not proposing this for people in midlife. Um, and then there's this incorporation where you come back into society in a sort of new role in society. Now, a guy named Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, talked about the hero's journey. And he actually used exactly this premise. George Lucas Star, this, of Star Wars fame his whole um, premise for every Star Wars movie was based upon those three stages, severing this threshold liminality period and then this idea of in reincorporating yourself back into society. George Lucas basically credits his, all of his screenplays to Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey. So I started thinking about that and saying, yeah, there's, we are really good at, in society of actually helping people through transitional times in life. Puberty. Bat mitzvah, bar mitzvah, in Latin, the Latin world, quinceanera, okay. You're going from adolescence to adulthood. You actually graduate from something. You commencement. You have a commencement. You're commencing adulthood. You're going to actually uh, create a long-term relationship with someone, get married. You have a wedding. You're going to have a birth. You have a baby shower. You die. This is Bali. You have a funeral. But between baby shower and funeral, nada, nothing. Why? Because longevity was such that in the year 1900, midlife was 24 years old, if, if longevity was 47. So we didn't know midlife in the year 1900 the way we do today. Now, in 1965, a psychologist coined the term midlife crisis. Uh, and, you know, the thing you do in a midlife crisis is you go buy a Ferrari or, or something like that. And there was a sort of, yeah, we, and we sort of, it's sort of like this, oh, it's this period, you'll go through it. But the thing that's interesting about it is it's 54 years later from that, the time that, that term was coined. And we've done zero societally to help create some rite of passage for people through midlife. So that's what I started to think about. And I started thinking to myself, as the crossing guard at this intersection, no longer this, not yet that. What is it? What is midlife? What is it if it is this weird sort of traffic circle of feeling like, you know, it's Groundhog Day and it doesn't feel very good? Because the way we think societally of midlife is the following. We think of it as this period of time when you go through some challenges, yes, all those transitions. You don't really, t especially if you're men, you don't really talk about them a whole lot. If you're women, you probably do. Uh, this is part of the reason why you know, suicide rate for men is five times higher than for women. Uh, and you 
start to say, okay, well, I'll get through it, but when I get to the other side of midlife, what do I have to look forward to? Being elderly, decrepitude and disease. So this is the societal model that's defined our, our culture. And I think it's time for us to actually rethink it. And the good news is I'm not alone in this. There's a lot of other people who, who are thinking that as well. So I started to actually think more about life stages. And I, I decided to look at the ultimate liminality. The ultimate liminality in life is this, caterpillar to butterfly. The story of the caterpillar to the butterfly is fascinating. That is the liminal stage. So there's a severance from the past. This is liminal stage. And then you reincorporate yourself in this absolutely new form, a butterfly. And what's fascinating about this biology is the caterpillar within it had the butterfly. It's called the imaginal disks that actually, they're, they're, there's like just like had the DNA in essence of a butterfly inside of it. But here's the part that's fascinating. When the caterpillar actually eats and eats and eats and eats all the leaves and then it all of a sudden decides to spin its cocoon, its chrysalis, that it actually it's going to go into, it doesn't know what it's going to become. The caterpillar has no idea it's going to become a butterfly. Although, how do we know? I mean, like, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a caterpillar psychologist, so I can't tell you. But from what we know from the caterpillars that we've interviewed. Um, so what's interesting is what if that, that chrysalis period is the gooey midlife of the butterfly? And what if life as a butterfly is not growing older, it's growing whole. It's actually growing into something quite beautiful that flies. What if that was how we looked at life a little differently? Now, I know this, some of you are thinking like, oh, you chip, you've been hanging out in the hot tub too long. Um, but this is a guy, that, Carl Jung, this is not Carl Jung. Um, this is, um, Carl Jung, famous, uh, famous psychologist said, we cannot live the afternoon of life according to the program of life's morning. For what was great in the, in the morning will be little at evening, and what in the morning was true at evening will become a lie. The first half of life is about accumulating, just like a caterpillar, accumulating, eating leaves, storing up, getting bigger. We do that as humans. We, the way we accumulate is we end up getting into a relationship, maybe getting married, having kids, um, getting a job, then getting another job, getting a home, then getting another home, buying stuff, having all that stuff in our garage that we can't use. Then we go get a mini storage place to, to actually accumulate because we run out of space. And you know, more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. And at some point we've just accumulated and the second half of our life is about editing. And some of you are in that phase where you know, you, I totally get this. Know that, oh my God, my life got simpler when I started editing it, editing it because the accumulation phase was like, went on way too long. So this quote's accurate. And, the, but so, and yet we haven't really trained people how to do that. And, you know, it's like you have to figure it out like the caterpillar did on its own. So here is a fascinating study that most people don't know about. It's, it's getting a lot of attention now. It's been done in, around the world in over 100 cultures, and it's called the U-curve of happiness. The book that really popularized it recently was a book called The Happiness Curve uh, that came out last year. This, <laughs> I'll explain it and then I'll say the one, the one country in the world where it actually doesn't work. Um, what it basically says is this is life satisfaction or let's just call it happiness. Um, it starts to drop, frankly, you know, when you become an adult. And it just goes down and it goes down and it goes down. And around 47, around when, you know, you know late 40s, early 50s, 
is when it actually hits its lowest point. And it's partly because of the mashup of all those things that happen at that time. It's a variety of other things too. It's also, the, there's a, my last book was called Emotional Equations and there's a, an equation in the book, disappointment equals expectations minus reality. Um, sort of a truism in life. Well, your 40s are sort of the era where like you had all these expectations and then some of them aren't working out the way you wanted them to and that's when the disappointment starts to kick in and you have to actually rejigger uh, your expectations as you go into your 50s and you start to actually get a little bit less, you know, um, obsessive about those kind of things. Uh, so it actually gets better. And here's the part that's fascinating in this study. People in their 50s are happier than their 40s. People in their 60s are happier than their 50s. People in their 70s are happier than their 60s. For men, it starts to level off. Uh, this, 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 it is, this is the Gallup World Poll that shows this. Um, it's not exactly this. This looks a little too much like a smile, um, but it's sort of a little bit like this. For men in their late 70s, it starts to level off, and in, in early 80s, if they're still living, it starts to go down a little bit. For women, it keeps going up into their 80s. Uh, so what does this say? It says, wow, we thought the societal narrative is after 40 or 45 or 50, it just gets worse and worse and worse. That's not what this shows. The only country in the world where this does not exist is in Russia. And the Russia, the, the Russia uh, graph shows the following. People are happiest after they die. Uh, I, don't know how the math, I don't know how the math on that works, but I've read it in three different studies. That people are happiest after they die. I don't know, what, I don't know how that works. But, so here is my alternative way of looking at the journey of life, the game of life. If there's a new board game, this is the new board game. Uh, and here's, here's how it works out. So if, if using on this axis, or on this uh, vertical axis here, I've sort of got the, uh, the caterpillar to butterfly story. Um, and you know, you're, you have this growth mindset. So growth mindset basically means I'm, I'm gonna try, I'm, I'm, I don't mind you know, not doing it well, I'm gonna learn. And you become an adult, then you're an embodied adult, you're this emerging elder in midlife. It's sort of, a, it's that cocoon or that chrysalis. And then you actually come on the other side of the emerging elder, this darker period, this, uh, and you're actually are an embodied elder. And at some point you're an elder flower, whatever that is. Um, but the point of this is to say the following. What if we actually imagined and, and actually prepared people, I wish I'd been prepared 11 years ago, that your chip, you're 47 years old, that is like one of the lowest points on that U-curve of happiness for the following reasons. Just know you're going through a period where you're gonna get to the other side. If you could open up the, the gooey chrysalis of the caterpillar halfway through becoming a butterfly, it isn't pretty. It doesn't look good, it's gooey. What if midlife is a gooey period? Doesn't mean it's a bad period, it's just a gooey period. On the other side of that gooey period, is this period where you, you start editing and frankly, you get to a place where you start looking like a butterfly. Now, if you actually turned this on its side, it looks sort of like a, uh-oh, a butterfly, wow. So one thing I have learned about getting older is, uh, getting older is about gravitas and levity at the same time. Levity, laughter, uh, not taking ourselves too seriously. Um, so that is my premise of how things work now. Um, this is a beautiful quote from, I think, Richard War, Christian mystic, uh, modern-day Christian mystic, which really just speaks to the idea that um, 
there's a period of time in the first half of life that we live, and then there's a period of time in the second half of life that's quite different. Now, Shakespeare, long ago, uh, if I had had a quote for, uh, slide for Shakespeare, you would hear this, but Shakespeare said the following. He said, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. I'm going to say that again. The meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. That's what I did at Airbnb. That's what you do with your kids. That's what, that's the nature of the second half of life. But we do not have any instruction manual for this stuff. And it's partly because it didn't exist in the year 1900. No one, you know, but this is a new era of life that nobody has really given enough attention to. So I went down to Baja. Uh, you know, you know it, the long peninsula below here. Um, an hour north of Cabo San Lucas in an area called Todos Santos, Pescadero. Uh, I bought a home near the beach. Uh, and this is actually dead. Have you ever been with Saul de Alfredo? That's Alfredo. The, you know, it's where our, we have a shaman that actually takes people right there and does little ceremonies for them right there. Um, I went down there because I was going to write my book down there, and I liked being down there. I also write, I went there because uh, William B Blake, a, a writer, once said, uh, there's certain places in, in life, there's certain places in life where you just take dictation. And what he meant by that is there's certain places in, in, in life where somehow in those places, something comes through you. You just somehow are connected to, you know, without sounding too crazy woo-woo, you're connected to something bigger than you and you're just channeling big thoughts. That is how I feel down in Baja. Um, so I started writing there and, and as I was writing there and I was interviewing all these people who are in anxiety and bewilderment, I said, how do we as a society not have a place for people to try to understand um, how to make it through midlife? This is this transitional period and we haven't really done much to, to help um, address that. So I, I, I decided to create the world's first midlife wisdom school, uh, a, an a academy, a place where people come uh, it's called the Modern Elder Academy. This is just a little piece of the campus. It's three acres on the beach uh, in Baja, California. Um, and people come for a week at a time. They arrive on a Sunday. They leave on a Sunday. There's a 150-page workbook and a curriculum. Um, average age is 52 in terms of people who are going there. Um, we've had people, uh, last week I was teaching there, and we had a woman 78 years old who's an, been an artist her whole life. She is ready to actually take her art to a new level and to try to figure out how to teach young people. Um, and so she came there to sort of help re remake herself. A few weeks earlier, we had a 30-year-old, an Instagram star, African-American guy here from Los Angeles, who's got hundreds of thousands of followers, who at age 30 had said, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of being a narcissist. I'm tired of having like all this, you know, this social media. I want to do something different. So at age 30 or at age 78, these are different eras of people navigating midlife transitions, reimagining how to repurpose their life. Because again, it's not about getting all that education from age, you know, up to age 20 and 25 and then just using what you learned from college or graduate school and using that for the rest of your life because life is changing faster than ever before. So... Um, Started this place, Modern Elder Academy. It's a social enterprise, which means it's a non, it's not, it doesn't have a profit motive. Um, 50 to 60% of the people who come are on scholarship. 
which allows us to have socioeconomic diversity. So I started thinking about, okay, this is the guy, Erdogan von Genep, 115 years ago, who created the rites of passage idea of severance, threshold, liminality, and incorporation. So I ended up applying that thinking when I wrote uh, Wisdom at Work to the four uh, stages of what is, how do you become a modern elder? These are my four stages. First, I had to evolve out of being who I was, which is the hardest one. Most of us are really stuck with who we are. Like, I, I don't want to be, you know, for me, it was, okay, I was a CEO, of, excuse me, CEO of my own company. Now I'm the dumbest person in the room. That was a really hard transition. Um, and so you have to sort of strategically edit your historical work identity and what you know and what you're, and then that leads to the learning. If you're not willing to learn, if you're not being that curious learner, you know, you're in trouble. Anybody ever heard of Peter Drucker? So Peter Drucker, famous, famous, most famous management theorist of all times, taught at, uh, out at Claremont. Um, he wrote two thirds of his 40 books after the age of 65. He, every two years, he would study a subject that he, had, that he didn't know anything about, that had nothing to do with being a management theorist, everything from medieval war strategies to Japanese ikebana, and he'd become one of the world's leading experts because he believed that every two years, if he did that, it would lubricate his brain. So learning is an essential piece because if you're going to be both curious and wise, curiosity requires the learning. Curiosity actually opens up the possibilities of life. So opening up possibilities is great. Wisdom distills what's important. So that process of being both curious, opening up possibilities, and then distilling down what's essential and important is what those, that, that helps to do. Thirdly, um, if you're a modern elder, you actually, the truth is, as we get older, we don't necessarily get smarter, or at least our IQ doesn't usually change much over the course of our life. But our EQ actually gets better as we age. And our ability to understand humans, uh, wisdom I define as pattern recognition, recognizing patterns. And if you recognize patterns earlier, you can sort of understand what's about to happen and your intuition kicks in. And when it comes to understanding patterns around yourself and other people, you get better at that with time. And also, being a 52-year-old at Airbnb surrounded by 25-year-olds, I'm not competitive with them. I'm not trying, I don't want their job. I don't want the job that they want next. And so I was sort of uh, the person who was often sort of helping them get better at what they do. So this is what, why there's some studies out recently that show that if you actually have a team where you have some older people on a team, you create invisible productivity. Everybody gets better as a result of having an older person on the team. And that leads to counsel, um, which means that you become an advisor. Unfortunately, a lot of us as we get older think that's the first step. Oh, I'm supposed to just counsel you. In fact, it's not really counseling you, it's preaching at you. It's saying this is the way to do things. And that's because that hierarchy of wisdom goes from old to young is what we grew up with. But actually, if you're preaching, uh, you're, you're a pastor. And most young people don't want to listen to their pastor nor their parent. So you, if you sound like either a pastor or a parent, it isn't going to work. So that's Carrie. That's Amy. There are a couple of grads uh, from the, uh, the academy who came during the beta period. Uh, Carrie, in particular, she came Wow, she was in a liminal period. She arrived a year ago. She left her, she and her husband were getting divorced. Actually, they were not getting divorced yet. She was leaving her husband and she literally moved out of her house the week before she came to the academy for the week-long program. She arrived 
and she was basically in that severance period, truly, in terms of her 17-year marriage. She came with Amy, who's her high school best friend, who was also going through a lot of issues. Um, Carrie, just in that prior year, had started a new company. So, you know, they talk about, like, you know, there's five, there's certain things that create a lot of stress, and, you know, uh, certainly having a divorce uh, or starting a divorce and then starting a company at the same time was difficult. So she came in a very raw place. She was, uh, she was raw and ready to learn. Um, long story short is she, a year later, she ended up meeting a guy. We're not a, we're not a dating service, but she met a guy in the program then, didn't date him for about six months. Just about Her co cohort had 13 people, 14 people in it. Met him and Steve, his name's Steve, and, and uh, a year, uh, six months later, they started dating, and she's in a, a completely different place in her life. She's now divorced, she's dating Steve, her company's doing very well, um, and she has decided to dedicate herself to actually go back and teach people in midlife actually how to make it through midlife. And so she's a good example of somebody who's actually giving back. So I'm gonna wrap up now, and then we'll do Q&A. So, the way we thought of life, the way we've sort of been taught life is, is you fill up, you know, we have a vehicle. Our vehicle's our body and our lives, and we fill up with gas early in life. And I, I would call that fueling period is the educational period of adolescence into high school, college, and maybe even graduate school. We fill our tank, and then we go drive our vehicle for the rest of our lives. And we wonder why people are running on fumes in their 50s and 60s and 70s and beyond because as if there's just like one tank of gas. Life is a one tank journey. But life is absolutely not a one tank journey. It's a two tank, three tank, who knows how many tanks journey. Your mileage may vary. Um, <laughs> but let's call it a two tank journey. If it's a two tank journey, there's a time you need to refuel. And I believe that time is in midlife. It's a period where you actually start to imagine things in a new way. Um, and so I do believe that it, it is a time where we actually have to sort of start uh, thinking about this midlife uh, atrium that I talked about earlier. So, it's a Michael Mead quote. Um, I'm actually going to read this to you as, uh, as it goes up here. Um, I'll, he, Michael Mead is a modern-day mythologist. Uh, Although an infant becomes a child simply by aging, a person cannot become an elder by, by simply becoming older. Elders fall into the category of things that are made not born. Becoming an elder is not a natural occurrence. The qualities needed don't simply develop from physical changes brought on by aging. Rather, there is something metaphysical involved, something philosophical and spiritual that is required. Old age alone doesn't make the elder. So what I am trying to do with this world's first midlife wisdom school is create a place where we mint elders in the making. And why do we need elders in the making? Well, I don't think there's going to be any change over the next 100 years in the idea that power is going to go younger and younger. Technology, Generation Z people are even more digital natives than millennials because they've had it. Like, they're the ones who go up to a magazine and you know, their mom's reading a magazine and they keep hitting the magazine as if it's a screen, thinking that it's gonna change. No, that's a digital magazine. An old school magazine, you don't hit it. You actually turn the page. But their whole premise is purely technology driven. So 
the idea that somehow we're gonna go back to an era where all the power rests with the old people, not so much gonna happen. But the idea that these young people need to be paired with people who actually are prepared to actually know what does it mean to be a modern elder is I think very much our future. Um, this is uh, Dan Gilbert who uh, has given a bunch of TED Talks. Um, my favorite TED Talk of his is one where he showed that human beings are works in progress that mistakenly think they're finished. He studied across every single age range, people massively underestimated how much change was gonna happen in the next 10 years of their life. Every period, not just young people, but mid-level, mid-life people and older people. Life is liminal, life is change, and that is you know, what he was able to show. So just to summarize, <laughs> Modern elders know how to surf change. Um, this is a, uh, a community near Perth, Australia, where they actually have a, a celebrating change. It's called Celebridge. It's a Celebridge Day every year. And it's basically dedicated to people turning 60 in this Australian community who are gonna try something new for the first time. Wouldn't that be interesting? Actually, Japan has it as well. They call it, actually in Japan, they call um, turning 60 kanriki, and they say it's the beginning of one's second childhood. So isn't that interesting? And in fact, that's when dad learned how to surf, I mean, uh, scuba dive. So the question I'm gonna ask you and try to leave you with is how much of your adult life, or what percentage of your adult life is still ahead of you? I'm 58 now, if I do live till 98, I'm at the 50% point. How about you? Um, how are you going to become, how are you going to create the perfect alchemy of curious and wise? How are you going to become a modern elder? How are you going to prepare yourself such that you start mining your mastery and your wisdom in a way that you can actually offer it to others? Now, there's a big piece of this that we haven't talked about here yet, which is ageism, which is like we can do all this preparation, but if society looks at us as like people who are supposed to be put out to pasture, this isn't going to work. That's something we can talk about in Q&A. Um, what we know is the following, is that ecologists will tell us that if you plant a young tree in a grove of other trees, what tends to happen relative if you just plant it on its own, is that young tree actually learns the root system of the older trees. And then it uses that root system as a guide for how to grow. It's actually how, you know, how trees grow in forests. And then there's an underground root system that keeps them all together. Well, I believe that kind of root system and that kind of thinking around trees is very relevant around humans. And so the question for you is, are you ripe, awesome, and ready to blossom? <laughs> um, that's the end of my presentation. Uh, and now I'm just going to open it up for Q&A. Oh, right here. There you go. Yes. Yes. Who has the first question? I'll bring you a microphone. I'm going to ask one that just is, is, it us is your crowd usually mostly boomers? Or it varies. You know, I, when I'm giving talks in Silicon Valley, it's mostly millennials. Uh -huh. uh, so um, this, I mean, I'll just, I, I'm a little bit on tour right now, so I'm, I leave tomorrow for New York and I give a talk for, to 500 HR professionals. So back to the ageism piece I just talked about. 
So 500, it's called SHRM, S-H-R-M. It's the Society of HR Management, I think, if it's not, it's not mistaken. It's the biggest HR society in the world. And I'm actually giving a, a keynote speech at their Las Vegas conference, their global conference in June. That one is, you know, mostly millennials and Gen Xers. Uh, so, and then on Tuesday, on Monday, I give a speech in Toronto uh, at the uh, Toronto, uh, the Canadian Board of Trade to about 1,000 people and it'll be across all ages. So it really varies. Um, uh, yeah, so I think actually what's been interesting to me is frankly younger people have really been interested. They say, how can I find a mentor? So a lot of people, we think of millennials like, oh, they just know it all, they don't want, no, 75% of millennials want a mentor and about 4% actually have one. How did, um the gentlemen, I forgot all their names that you're associated with. Um, how did they come to decide that they needed a mentor? What, what made them think that at such a young age? So Brian Chesky, um, so he was 31 when he reached out to me. He, um, I had said this at a little dinner we had earlier. The thing that was interesting about Brian is Brian had this mindset he wanted to learn. He just wanted to learn. So in 2011, two years before I joined the company, there was a sort of high profile situation where some guest, Airbnb guest, now at that time the company was a tiny company, um, an Airbnb guest trashed an Airbnb host's home. But the company had no preparation for that. They hadn't like thought through it. So, so Brian went out to actually then ask a guy named George Tenet, T-E-N-E-T, who used to be the head of the CIA, what they should do. <laughs> and so it's like, I mean, fortunately, Brian had new people who knew him. So Brian's point of view, Brian's point of view was he had the chutzpah to just sort of, I, I'm going to go out and ask people and learn from them. And so that was his perspective with me when it came to hospitality. He decided that of all the people in the hospitality business, um, I guess I was the person who he felt like was most able to, to help them. I was also, I lived 12 blocks from their headquarters, which also helped. Um, uh, but I, I think to his credit, he didn't feel like he knew it all. A lot of young people have that hubris, especially the technology startup people. They have that hubris because that's what venture capitalists want. They want someone who's like got this idea and then they know they've got all that confidence that they're going to make it work. But that kind of hubris with time actually become, means that you, you're, you're close-minded because you're just focusing on your own thing. Brian had a, enough humility to see that he needed to learn from other people. And he also, I mean, to his credit, think about it. He's 31, I was 52. I'd been running my own company for 24 years, a hospitality company. They wanted to become a hospitality brand. You know, if I were him, I would have been a little bit scared that this guy Chip's going to come along and try to actually take over the company. I didn't want to do that. That was the good news. And our uh, rapport was so strong that, and his own personal confidence about his ability to grow into being a great leader was strong enough that... Um, you know, he didn't let his fear stop his process of learning. Over there. I want to thank you for the information you shared. Um, when I was 24 years old, I was a nurse, and I, six weeks before I got married, I went in the hospital, and they didn't expect me to live, and I couldn't, I, I ended up in a wheelchair. And they basically told my family that I would never be well, never be able to work, never walk. In fact, I wouldn't live very long. So I had, I made a decision. And I'll tell people, because they'll ask me, how do you do the things you do? 
And I'll tell them that although my body's in the wheelchair, my mind and spirit is not in the wheelchair. And I look at every day, and I'm all excited, like, what can I do today to make a difference in the world? And I'm excited to meet people. While you've been on this journey, I'm going to label this a journey. That might not be the proper word. Have you had people that were told such? And um, are they going coming to you for guidance? And is there a difference in the type of way you would approach them for them to be able to be their utmost self and contribute to, man, to mankind and make a difference in the world and be authentic at the same time? Sure. Um, two thoughts on that. First of all, your journey, um, you basically you got the accelerated journey of what it means to age in the sense of um, it, it, we tend to think of growing old is our physical body growing old. We don't think of growing whole like a tree grows whole. Um, and it's partly because the playing field that we define success by in our society is physical. Uh, and then it's financial, and then frankly, actually in Silicon Valley, people's peak earning years is actually 45, and after that it's downhill. In the general population, it's about age 50 to 52, and then it's downhill. So later in life, you may have wealth, but in terms of annual income, it goes down. So if you're playing on the playing field of physical or financial, you can sort of feel like the latter part of your life isn't very good. And yet emotionally, spiritually, wisdom-wise, et cetera, you only get better. And the, so I think what I help people to see, and you got a, a, a difficult but maybe beautiful dose of it at a young age, was the physical playing field is not the only playing field to play on. Now, in Los Angeles, I know there's, you know, Los Angeles and Silicon Valley are the two Botox capitals of the world. And um, LA for, you know, obvious reasons. Um, in terms of like, you know, this is a very youth-oriented culture, especially the entertainment industry. In Silicon Valley, it's because engineers want to look younger because actually it's perceived that after about age 35, if you're a software engineer, you're ready to be put out to pasture. So you want to look younger. It's crazy. No, it's honestly. Uh, so, so the truth is that that's the, the issue there is an issue of the physical playing field versus the financial versus the emotional one. So in terms of the journey and helping people with that, yes. I mean, one of my challenges is I only have so many hours in the day. I've tried to funnel this through the academy so I can have, we've had people from 19 different countries apply to come to the academy. We've had 500 people apply so far and 153 who came through the beta program. So for something that's barely a year old, where people have to f go all the way and do a week-long program in a foreign country uh, most of the time, uh, and it's not an inexpensive program if you're not on scholarship, uh, then it's interesting that there's so much demand for this that that many people are seeking it out. So I, I think we're on to something here in the sense that there's a large number of people in midlife who are looking for some guidance on how to get, how to navigate all these transitions and to repurpose themselves uh, in a new way. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. A very interesting talk. It, it's kind of the generation ahead of you, you're, your folks in, in our generation, went through that, and I'm sure we sensed it, but we didn't put it in words, because it is a new phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, we're entering a third childhood. Yep. You know, the second childhood's behind us. And 
you know, now you're coming along and you're codifying it to a degree and explaining it back across the age groups. It doesn't matter what age you are, you just have to know that that is a phenomenon now mm -hmm. to look forward to or look back on. Yep. But I, I think uh, when I talk with our, our friends of our, our peer group and everything, we, we kind of shake our heads and go, what was that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it... You live through it, and the part that's fascinating is without having language to describe it, uh, and especially for men, without having the conversations about it, people can feel like they're playing the game of life wrong. Because it feels like, you know, they're not seeing that some of these things are actually almost a rite of passage for that period of time. Just like the process of puberty, everybody goes through it. Um, and there's certain things that, you know, you, if you, you don't feel too, I mean, you feel puberty is a difficult time for sure, but you know a bunch of your classmates are going through it as well, and you have guidance counselors in school, and you have all these other things, and you know, maybe we need more midlife guidance counselors. <laughs> no, exactly. You talk about um, younger people needing EQ guidance and mentors. When you think about uh, elders and who would be qualified for elders, do you look at the characteristics of the people, the people that go through your program? Do you recommend uh, you should never be an elder or a mentor? No, <laughs> no, we are not a we're not a certification program. Um, uh, no, you know, we, you do have to apply because we have more people applying than we have spaces. So there's an application process, and in that application process, it helps us to understand. But there's, I, you know, the truth is, it's I think it's a very wide berth in terms of who can actually become a modern elder, you know, that one, that one slide that talked about not everybody, aging doesn't necessarily make the elder. There is, I think, a process. And, and you know, here's the interesting stat that I learned in my process. When they studied wisdom, there's not a lot of correlation with wisdom and age. Surprise. I mean, we think age and wisdom. There is, there is a correlation between emotional intelligence and age, but not wisdom. Now, does that mean that wise people, old people are not wise? No, but it means that, frankly, if you cultivate and harvest your wisdom, you can be an amazing farmer of wisdom. But just because you're older doesn't necessarily mean you're wiser. And there's qualities that I think define that. And I think that the combination of that curiosity and the wisdom, generally speaking, the people who I think get older and are not necessarily getting wiser is because they're actually not learning. They're not curious. They're not actually taking that sort of that humility piece of like, okay, I'm willing to go out and look like, like an idiot um, learning Spanish at age 58. Chip, I want to thank you for a terrific lecture. This is a great book. And uh, if you want to get a copy, go over to the gift shop. Chip will join you over there. I think we'll call it an evening. I know some of you elders need, probably need to go home and get some sleep. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thanks.